I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Have you ever walked across the Brooklyn Bridge? Well, if you have, and you've stood on the Manhattan side, did you know that you were standing on top of an old wine cellar? Under the Manhattan anchor of the Brooklyn Bridge lies the Blue Grotto, an expansive storage space rented to wine merchants to help fund the bridge. Why? Because the temperature and humidity of the underground space was great for wine storage, and the bridge operations earned $5,000 a year from the Manhattan vaults alone in 1901. During Prohibition, the storage cleared out and it was used as storage by a newspaper company. But soon after Prohibition was repealed, it once again became a wine storage facility, though today it is used by the Transportation Department. Cool, humid, underground, and underwater chambers are excellent environments for storing alcohol products sometimes unwittingly. In 1997, bottles of 1907 champagne were found by a diver. The bottles were destined for the Russian royal family, but they sank on a ship in 1916, and they sold for over a quarter million dollars each. In 2010, dozens of bottles of champagne were found in the Baltic Sea, supposedly aged in perfect conditions, cool temperatures, darkness, and pressure. The bottles were about 170 years old. Now, perhaps inspired by some of these underwater finds, by 2008, winemakers in Crozermitage, Champagne, Muscadet, and Burgundy were all experimenting with underwater-aged wine. Today, wineries around the world are trying ocean and sea-aged wines. Aside from having novelty value, underwater storing is a great use of free, temperature-controlled space. For long-term storage, it's a very green solution and maybe something that becomes more commonplace as our world continues to grow more populated. Lots of winemakers are curious to how wine will evolve under the sea, and lots of collectors and merchants are looking for less expensive ways to store their wine in perfect conditions. If protective bottle coverings could be applied, 
Underwater storage could even one day be a viable option for collectors and restaurants looking for long-term off-site storage. This possible frontier, it brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, offshore account. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand jermaine stone on the show hello sir how are you doing well doing well great to see you great to be here great to be seen <laughs> so we're in upper manhattan now and you grew up in the bronx yes what was that like uh growing up in the bronx was fun i mean i i had a a great family uh, i was a mama's boy and um yeah i had i come from a pretty big family five brothers and sisters uh, it was a lot of fun what was the scene like I grew up in the Northeast Bronx, which is a pretty Caribbean neighborhood. You know, a lot of people have misconceptions about the Bronx, but it didn't really seem like a rough neighborhood or anything like that to me. It just, um, it was, it was, I had a great time, had a great childhood. Were you always a physically big kid though? <laughs> no, no. If you look at pictures of me, probably when I was 14, 15 years old, I was very, very skinny. <laughs> I just decided to work out one day. Because <laughs> at, at the moment, your watch is bigger than my neck. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's how I got bigger. You know, you wear bigger watches, the arms swell up. <laughs> Did it correspond, like, people in your neighborhood giving you less trouble to the point where you were getting bigger? You're like, you know, <laughs> you know I could break you, so. <laughs> I, honestly, I was always, when I, I always had, a lot of my friends used to call me a politician of sorts. I, I never really had any trouble with anyone. Everyone wanted to be my friend. <laughs> so thankfully, um, no, that was never an issue. And was wine a part of your life back then? Or? At that time, no. Uh, like I said, I, I grew up in a Caribbean neighborhood, and my parents are both Caribbean. So th it really wasn't something that was introduced to me. I really, I was not introduced to wine until I took a job at, at Zaki's when I was in college. How did that come about? I, like I mentioned earlier, I had come from a larger family, and my younger sister was in college at the same time that I was in college. So, you know, I didn't want my dad to have to pay for college for both of us at the same time. I really just stuck it out, and I said, I'm going to, you know, take school at night, and I'm going to get a day job. It was a really big problem in my house because my dad just, he, he 
he felt like I wouldn't concentrate on school if I was working full time. So uh, I moved on ahead and did what I wanted to do, took the job, and uh, I ended up in a shipping department every day packing wines, but I had a very strong work ethic. And um, I would meet specialists all day. I, I really didn't interact with them very much at that point. But um, you would see people in passing, and we grew a pretty good rapport. Uh, I just the always... specialists are the guys who kind of like handle or know what the wine yes, is. Yes, yes. These are the wine specialists. I just see them in passing. That's about it. And we really didn't have much conversation. But I always tried to be a, a helpful person. If someone was carrying too many boxes or something like that, I would just stop what I'm doing. Move over and help put another out. one on the stack. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like, that looks like a lot for you. Let's <laughs> let's add one more. Can, can you carry this? For me? <laughs> yeah. uh, no. So you know that that was that was really about it. And um, from there, I ended up moving on to an office administrator position in the auction department for Zachis. For, for Zachis, yes. And uh, I was a simple office admin, but I had a warehouse background. Because you knew Um, how it actually worked. Exactly. So that kind of gave me an edge as a a person that was dealing with customers, a person that was constantly taking orders and helping them get their shipments out. One of my goals was always to exceed their expectations. Now, if I'm friends with the guy in the warehouse that's packing and shipping boxes, I'm going to be able to get your shipment on a lot faster. I would um, I'd be able to follow it straight through. And that really, really pushed me along. So, But uh, also, you'd be like, I know it's in row K. Exactly. I know exactly where that is. And I, I know how I long it'll take. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I also know the FedEx guy. I know what time he's going to be here to pick this shipment up. And, you know, so those sort of things... Uh, Help me along. Real like, people stuff. Like exactly. Really knowing how it worked as opposed to just, you know, filing out paperwork. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, within that, that was really where I was introduced to wine, though, at when I was just 20 years old. So even then, I, I really, I wasn't, I didn't look at it as it was, it was going to grow into this blossoming career. But um, once I got into the auction department, you know, just seeing it so close up, and I, I got to learn why people, why everyone loved it so much at that time. So that was really, really where it all started. What was that kind of first experience with wine? It's it's tough when I, I, I tell people all the time when you're introduced to wine from the top end like that. You know, we would do tastings in the office all the time, and if your first time, you know, tasting Bordeaux is like. Lafitte from the <laughs> early 80s, you kind of get spoiled and you you think that this is what all wines taste like. So it was a real learning process. And, you know, that that was really where it started, just the office tastings. Do you ever go to your friend's party and be like, you call this wine? <laughs> like, seriously. Oh, you guys don't have your chem here? Nah, uh, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the invite, loser. But it also gets you a lot of invites because you're the guy bringing the great Likes stuff. The good stuff. <laughs> so it works in your favor and it doesn't work in your favor sometimes. But all that being said, when was the moment that clicked and you said like, yeah, not only is this my job, but I'm into this? It was It was probably later on, probably around... I. Around 2006, 2007, at that point, I had been promoted from and just the office administrator to an actual 
logistics coordinator. So what's a logistics coordinator do? A logistics coordinator's main responsibility is to arrange all inbound and outbound property. So if you're taking collections in for auction, you, you have to take a look at the home. You have to figure out what the fastest way to get in and out of there is. And um, Like you're going to have to go pick up wine from somebody's house. Absolutely. That's yeah. consigning wine. Exactly. Exactly. So that it, it tends to be a lot of surprises. You know, a, a good logistics coordinator is someone that looks at every possible scenario uh, that could go wrong. So what's and, gone wrong? Has like someone ever come out with a shotgun and been like, "What, what are you doing?" doing? No, you know? no shotguns. We a good logistics coordinator usually calls ahead. <laughs> so, so um, but no, no, no shotguns, nothing like that. But um, you know, you you run into situations where people don't necessarily tell you everything, and you have to prepare for. Let's say someone tells you that you're coming to pick up ten cases of wine. You have to be prepared to not only pick up that 10 cases of wine, but think about what surprises could lie ahead. Does this guy really have 50 cases of wine? Does he really have three cases of wine? You know, you you have to be prepared for those sorts of things. Because sometimes people don't really know what they have. More than often, people's uh, wine inventories are incorrect. They, you know, if you're taking wine out of your cellar, you're probably drinking. (laughs) So... It's really easy for that to, to for people to have an inaccurate estimate of what is actually in their cellar. So one of the, the important things is to be prepared for every possible scenario. There was one time we went to do a pickup where we would were told that we were only getting about 150 cases. We were out of town. You know, you're not close to the warehouse. You can't just run back and get packing materials or anything like that. The guy told us that he only had 150 cases. And after working with him for a day or so, he was like, you know what? Um, I have another cellar under my pool house, and there's a few bottles in there. Turns out that we ended up picking up almost 600 cases that (laughs) that was under his pool house that he didn't even tell us about. So, you know, we had to be be in a position to handle that. And um, so bring a bigger truck every time is pretty much the well. Have have always have a plan B. Always have a good plan B. So if you tell me that you you're, you're sending me to pick up ten cases, I'm going to be prepared for thirty cases just in case. Or you always want to have the right team in place, also, and that's that's very important. Have flexible people that are used to dealing with these surprise scenarios. Because what could a surprise scenario be? Like, hey, you guys can only come here in those hours or there are there are tons of different things. Um, it's usually someone having more or less wine than they say. But um another surprise scenario that you might run into is someone having steps that they didn't tell you about. Right, right. And and you right. only have one guy, but it's fifty cases. They told you that it would be a, an, an easy entry into the house, but you now have to deal with these steps, and instead of this job taking one hour, it's going to take three hours. So having people on staff that that are flexible and willing to deal with that sort of thing, having people that are willing to deal with the uh, some scenarios that might not be I- ideal. There was one seller where we were pick. It was in like Southern California, I believe. We had like a four person team, and um, 
there it was a, a home that was not currently being occupied. And there was so there was no running water. But they had this great modern cellar and they had a ton of items that they just didn't know were there. You know, we ended up taking out like Vogue from the nineties, uh Loire from the eighties. They had no idea it was there. But this house had no running water. <laughs> and it's a huge cellar job. So, you know, one of the main things that you have to do is inventory those items while you're there. And so so this was going on for like three days or something like that. Four-person team, no running water. That means no bathrooms <laughs> for, for eight or nine hours a day. Uh, you know, you, you have to get creative and have a, a staff that's willing to just roll with it, man. You know, there's the backyard, there's... McDonald's around the corner. There's any number of. Did you tell that guy, what are you drinking coffee again? I told you about that. No, see, again, a good logistics coordinator prepared for everything. You set, okay, we're doing three bathroom breaks a day. Right, right, right. You know, so listen, if you had too much coffee, it's going to be your own problem. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so it, it's just being able to roll with it and um, being having the ability to handle anything that's thrown your way. So what are the collectors like when you show up to pick their wine? I mean, are they happy to see you? Or are they like uh, not happy to see you? Is it like <laughs> usually, some spouse that, you usually, know? Thankfully, um, we have great re- relationships with uh, all the collectors that we deal with. So they're usually very happy to see us. But there are lots of different kinds of collectors. You have some guys that are really meticulous and they want to, stand with you in their cellar while you're taking all the wines out. So um, you would need to be prepared for that. There are some guys that wouldn't even want to be in the room. They just say, you know, the door's open, take what you need to take, and I'll see you later. And um, you have some people that get a little emotional. I've heard guys compare watching their wine cellars be packed up and um, taken out of their home to watching their kids leave for college. You know, he's got collecting this stuff for 20, 30 years sometimes. So people get sentimental about it. So it, it, there's there's always several different, there, there are many different types of collectors out there. Do you ever but, have guys that like kind of seem to regret their decision? Who are like, oh man, I <laughs> wanted to send it, but now I see it leaving. It's kind of yeah. tough. Oh yeah, that happens a lot also. A lot of that gets handled before we go to their home. Yeah. A lot of times we would, they would send in a list and uh, we would price it and they'd agree. But once you get to their house and they start looking at everything else, they're looking at things leaving. They're like, oh, you know, maybe I might want to drink that with my wife for her birthday. Uh, or sometimes wines get all the way back to the warehouse and it sinks in that, wow, the stuff's gone and it's not coming back. And they might ask to get the wines back. And, you know, every case is situational. You have to always think about the client first. But um, it's all about being flexible. <laughs> Again, that's the number one thing to remember with auction. Be flexible and be prepared to deal with anything. You know, we might be sitting here and as soon as this interview is over, my phone might ring and we get yes on the collection and I have to jump in a van and, and go do it right away. So those are the things that really uh, stuck with me since the beginning of my career and it's helped to get me to this point. So would it be all around the United States or all over the world honestly we've done I've done pickups I've arranged pickups in you know Sweden 
I've done deliveries to Russia, like you name it. I mean, everywhere you can think of, um, there are, there are wine drinkers. It's interesting right now. The Brazilian market is starting to get kind of hot, and Brazil has very difficult import laws. So you know, these guys they always work with their own carriers, but it, it's it's really it's really tricky because everywhere you look has different wine laws. So you just have to be prepared to handle that. Do collectors kind of vary by country or by nationality or by where they live in the United States? Or do you find Um, different kinds of people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say, you know, as we all know, in 2008, when the the laws changed in Hong Kong, uh, when the import laws changed in Hong Kong, there were a ton of the Far East buyers just all jumped in. And, um, you know, that really changed things for a long time. Um, but honestly, everyone loves wine. You'd be surprised. We obviously right now at Wally's, we have a huge California buying base. But uh, yeah, they're, they're everywhere. So how do you even go about, like, what's the first thing you do if you have to do a shipment to Hong Kong? Like, what? how does that even happen? Well, the the first thing you do is you would find an exporter. It's all about having an exporter that's familiar with dealing with that commodity. I mean, at this point, I could probably ship anything anywhere, <laughs> you know, but that comes from uh, just getting contacts all over the world. And it comes from trial and error. You know, in the past, it, there would be shipments that didn't go so well. So you learn that, okay, now when I'm shipping to Hong Kong, I need to make sure that every commercial invoice has this specific information. and um, But it, it really starts with finding an exporter that knows that part of the world. So um, obviously, I've gotten those sorts of contacts. And um, once you find an exporter, you might find several. Uh, you then shop around for who's giving you the best price. And Is it like that movie, The Transporter, with the guy with the car? <laughs> it, it it most certainly is. <laughs> I, I actually have his number. <laughs> so he's done several deliveries for me. <laughs> but um, no, no, it, it, it's, it's not like that. Hong Kong is actually such a wine-friendly country that it's really simple and shipments get cleared there really quickly. Countries that do produce wine, it tends to get a little bit more difficult. I mean, it's usually a little harder to get things in and or out of France. Whenever I'm importing wine into California, it usually takes a little bit longer. It's all, In specific wine-producing regions, it's usually a little bit more difficult. Have you traveled to, say, Hong Kong? Absolutely, yeah. What's uh, that market like? <laughs> it's It's a lot of fun. I've noticed U.S.-based auctions, they tend to be more, it's driven more off of absentee bids. And a lot of those items tend to be pre-sold. You know, we, we'd get a ton of absentee bids. We'd go into a sale, say, 80 or 90% pre-sold, meaning that the reserve on 80 or 90% of the items in the auction have already been met. In Hong Kong, it's more of a, a live market. So people tend to come out to the sales. That means that there's a lot more live in-room bidding and the sales will go on for a longer period of time because 
you know, there's so much more back and forth. But yeah, it's does that push the prices higher? Do you think? I mean, is that part of the high gavel? So it, it it could be. I wouldn't say there's a science to it. People tend to have a set price. You know, it's either you're willing to pay this amount for this specific wine or you're not. Is that something you see? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the collectors that I speak to, you know, they they did say this is what this specific wine is worth to me. And, um, you know, we, we also deal with a lot of traders, you know, and, and these guys, they come in, they have a set price. That's what they're going to pay. They know what their margin is. And that's where they're looking for a hammer at. It's, um, but you will find guys that come into a room and, you know, they can be jeered on a little bit by, by the auctioneer. But um, for the most part, I would say I've seen people just have a set price. Well, Zachy's actually opened up Hong Kong auctions about 2009? Or? Uh, they got into the market in 2008. Oh, in um, okay. Yeah, they, they got in at 2008. And, I mean, it was just so much fun. Uh, it's such a, a live and vibrant city. Everyone is, like, traveling for business, and they, they kind of want to get to know you. So it, it's, you know, when we'd have, uh, when they had auctions there, it was always a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. It really is a live market. Right now at Wally's where we're not doing auctions in Hong Kong just yet, but we do a lot to service the Asian community. We offer like free consolidated shipments. And we found that it really still cultivates that buying base out there. So, so they still buy, even though it's not in Asia. They still abso- buy, absolutely, in, um, like a New York sale. Exactly, it's it's really the same thing. As long as you make sure that it's accessible, you'll still be able to deal with the Asian market. So, what's the buildup like to move into a new country to do auctions there? I mean, what was that like? Exactly, was getting ready for that. Well, obviously, um, you had to touch base with people out there, uh, get the lay of the land. You'd need to have contacts on the ground as well as arrange dinners and just kind of let people get to know you and your brand. And um, once the collectors get to know you, get to know your brand, people feel a lot more comfortable buying from you. And um, that was, a would say they probably did that for maybe about a year. And uh, after that, <laughs> it was interesting because they kind of gave the staff a little bit of training and just Introduce them to things that they would see, and um, what would be jump, an example of that? Well, there were things like I mean, something as simple as just the way to give someone a business card was different. You know, you don't just hand it to someone; it's you know, with two hands, and you bow as you're giving it, handing it to them. So that that was really different. And I mean, just coming from the position that I was in, you know, a kid from the Bronx that ended up in Hong Kong, it was just. <laughs> Insane, you know, going home, telling my friends about this stuff. It was, it was really like, fun. They have the best Chinese food. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I remember one time I was like texting one of my friends, and he's like, "Dude, are you texting me from Hong Kong right now? <laughs> Do you know what time it is? <laughs> like a twelve-hour time difference." And so it was, um, it was, it was a lot of fun, and you get to learn so much by just seeing the world. You know, seeing how other people live. It was um, it was a lot of fun. Were there ever real signature moments like that for you, where you're like, "Wow, I cannot believe I am in this house right now"? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
I did a I did a fair amount of partying in Hong Kong, as anyone that went there did, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, literally, I would say probably the first time I went to Hong Kong, I was introduced to the culture and you know, I realized how easy it was to get a tailor-made suit. And for me, you know, I, I I love suits. And at that time, I was really into like sneakers. I was into Jordans and all this stuff. And um, a guy that was showing me around out there, he was just like, listen, in Hong Kong, we don't just buy suits. You get your suit made. It's way cheaper than it is in the U.S. So, you know, I walked in. Picked a few fabrics out, picked out a nice design, and it was turned around in like two or three days. You know, it was insane. So that became my thing. So every time I went to Hong Kong, I would have like two or three suits made, <laughs> get like four or five shirts made. So um, it was really cool. But when when I when I made that first suit, I was just like, wow, this is insane. I mean, I just got a tailor made suit for like a quarter of the price that it would usually cost, and Okay, I could get used to this. And it literally changed the way that I dressed all around. Because you're a sharp dressed guy in general. I like to I like to try to be, <laughs> you know, as much as I can. But um yeah, yeah, it, it really opened my eyes to just a different way to carry myself. Are wine dinners different there? I would say it's a from from what I've seen, I'd say it's about the same. It's interesting because from our perspective, Guys are more so asking our opinion, what we think about this, and looking for an influence on what they should be drinking, as opposed to here, dinners are, are more just a, a it's an equal exchange. You know, it's hey, I'm drinking this. What are you drinking? That would be the only difference that I'd say I've seen. It's also. Well, no, it, it's kind of changing now. Uh, when we first got in, it was really about it was kind of like a name brand, brand sort of sort of place. You know, everything is Lafitte, everything is like uh, Margot or whatever, all the blue chip Bordeaux stuff. But now they're really opening up to trying different wines. Do you think that is partly because of American consultants working with the collectors or consultants from anywhere in the world working I, with the collectors? I think it's more so information is just so much more accessible. I think it has a lot to do with social media. People are not just listening to one big consultant. Um, they're looking at someone yay's in a, in a favorite restaurant that they tried out that one time when they were in New York and now they're following him on Twitter and he's drinking this. So that's going to be something that they're going after. And I mean, ultimately I think that is probably what's changing the market right now. You know, have you experienced any work with the mainland China? Not directly. A lot of the guys from mainland China would often come into the, come into Hong Kong and, you know, purchase live. So, um, yes and no. We're obviously not going to be selling direct there, but um, a lot of guys tend to come into Hong Kong, purchase, and send them back on their own. And what about Singapore? Is that a market for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's the same situation. Hong Kong is really the, the hub for all of Asia. You know, all the, the Asian uh, wine market, they all come to Hong Kong and come to those auctions and just parcel them out all over the place, South Korea, everything. 
one of the things that you've done as part of your job is not just do logistics, but you also moved into a, a, a standing clerk at yes. auctions. And what does that mean? So when that was actually one of the um, one of the first things in auction that I did when I was still an office administrator, one of my main priorities was to be the standing big clerk. And I worked with this guy, Edgar Barbosa, <laughs> literally taught me everything about auctions. Everything had to be perfect for him. And he really beat it in my head how far a mistake could go. So with that, I moved into becoming a I would just simply process bids at that time. I was the guy that was entering all absentee bids when they would come into the office. And during live auctions, I was the standing bid clerk. Now that means I'm kind of like an an auction stenographer. You know, I'm I'm writing down all of the activity that's happening in the room, what paddle number is bidding, what increment they were at. And um, I would also watch the auctioneer make sure that they're not missing any books on the bid and make sure that they're not missing anyone in the room that put their hand up. So um, so if a guy bids but the auctioneer doesn't see it, do you say like, whoa? Like, exactly. Okay. You'd have to be <laughs> okay with stopping them, not making it weird, not disrupting the flow of the auction and making sure that they're accounting for everyone in the room. There might be times the auctioneer is putting their head down and about to sell a lot to someone and somebody just darts their hand up really quickly. It, it's the standing big clerk's job to um, point that person out and make sure that everyone, every bit is counted. Does the flow change a lot, auction to auction or lot to lot? Absolutely. The auctioneer really has to read the room and um, kind of take a look. You don't, you don't want to drag things out for too long if, if you don't have to. If you notice that you have a lot of supporting bids on the book and no one in the room is kind of making that eye contact with you and letting you know that they're interested, you're just you're going to move on. And that's what the that's why, you know, you you that's how you can find a good auctioneer, someone that's able to read the room and um guide the flow of an auction to keep people interested. And that's you you see that from time to time. You might see people that just really, really want to sell a lot, so they'll they'd be willing to keep the lot open as long as, long as so there are still bodies in the room, you know. But um, it's really all about managing the pace of the auction and making sure you're not going too fast, and also making sure that you're not going too slow. Because you've actually done some auctioneer work more recently. Yes, yes, I am. I am a a budding auctioneer. It's it's interesting. You can you really have to like take the whole room in and you can look at a person and see who's interested in a lot, see who's flipping through their catalog and they're, they're gripping for the, they're reaching for the paddle. So, you know, okay, I have some interest here. I'm going to try to talk this up a little bit more. And um, you'd also see when someone's turned away and kind of having a conversation with their wife or their friend. So you just move along. What's the hardest thing about being an auctioneer? Um, Standing up for like eight hours. No, yeah. <laughs> There's no running water in the there building. No running water. We've had auctions where there was no running water. No, we we've never had an auction like that. Um, no, I'd say the hardest thing is um, just really keeping your composure, keeping your energy up. You're responsible for the energy of that room as an auctioneer. So 
you you really have to keep your energy up. And those guys are up there for a long time. If you're up there for, say, 200 lots, you're there for an hour, an hour and a half sometime. And that's a long time. <laughs> so to do one thing consistently, it's the same thing with the standing big clerk. I've some when training guys to be a standing big clerk, I've sometimes referred to it as watching paint dry on a wall and having to pay attention to every single speck of paint <laughs> at, at every given time. And you kind of go on autopilot and you, your your brain just does it. So um, once you get that, it's all easy. But starting out, it's it's one of those things that you really have to get used to. Are there ever moments where you've been like, Oh damn! Like something <laughs> screwed up, and what would that be? I mean, what's what what is the possibility for a screw up in a, as a yeah. big clerk or as an auctioneer? Well, there there are a lot of things that could happen, and you know it, it does happen. You just have to be in a position to fix it. It always comes from having a good team and being able to communicate with your team without disrupting what's happening in the room, without taking people's attention away from what they should be paying attention to, which is the, always the auctioneer. You can find that uh, sometimes there might be a technical glitch and you you might notice that bids are not popping up on an auctioneer's screen. So you have to get the IT guy's attention. You have to get that <laughs> resolved as, as quickly as possible. Or um, you might notice something like the auctioneer gave shouted out an incorrect paddle. And uh, in, instead of stopping the auctioneer and confirming that, you have to refer back to your notes while still taking in all the action that's still happening in the room and correcting it on the books. Or um, what also happens is on the back that people don't see is verification of all of that data that is currently being entered, um, which means all the the selling price, the hammer prices and paddle numbers are all being entered as the auction is going on. And there's also a person that's sitting there verifying that what's on the clerk's pages is correct with what's been entered into the system. So you'll always get some someone to like drag your code or whatever, or come tap you and let's say that there's been a discrepancy and you have to handle that while you're on the podium. So... Um, it all comes from communication with your team and you know sometimes you just write a note <laughs> something so like that there's been times where um i remember one i don't remember when this was maybe sometime like last summer or something uh have you ever seen the auctioneer's books no all right so an auctioneer's book is pretty much a script for the auctioneer it has the lot description the lot number the estimates, the reserve, and three top bidders on that lot. That's what the auctioneer is getting all that, the information that he's announcing to the room from. There was one time where the an auctioneer was flipping through and he realized that um, there was no information on a page. There was no lot number, no nothing. <laughs> so we literally had to go into the catalog and hand draw up a page. <laughs> so... Again, just having a flexible team, people that can communicate and put on a good show without disrupting the energy and the flow of the room. It's really important. 
sometimes I've seen auctioneers engage with the audience more or less. Like sometimes they focus more on the lot and sometimes they, they focus more on the bidders. Like, hey, Joe, I know you're going to, you know, <laughs> you this one's for you. I know you like uh, Riesling or, you know. I mean, uh, how does one find a personal style in that way and what works for you and what have you seen work? Um, I was actually talking with our principal auctioneer, Ursula Hermosinski, about this recently. And every auctioneer is different, you know, and when finding your style, you have to, one, be true to yourself and you, you also have to know what you do well. And she was telling me how that her number one thing is efficiency, you know, so she just kind of she she's able to do a, an insane amount of lots in a very short period of time which is awesome and um it it's really up to the auctioneer and, and everyone has their own style i find that michael who is an amazing auctioneer he's he's like hilarious and he has this great positive energy that people in the room tend to feed off of so you know he he's been able to be a very successful auctioneer with that. It's just, um, it's really case by case and it's always up to who the auctioneer is. I'm still trying to find my style. I like to be the cool auctioneer, maybe the most handsome auctioneer. (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) But we're still working on that. I I have um, my, my team putting some thoughts together. Because I could see you being the guy who identifies people's suits in the room. Exactly, exactly. Is that Louis from Hong Kong did that for you? (laughs) All right, Louis from Hong Kong for 50. All right. To the lady in the the blouse from last season. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Um, But no, I'm, I'm still trying to find my style. At this point, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm, I'm right and easy to understand. You know, as long as you're clear, you keep the energy in the room up. Uh, I think people will, will enjoy you and, and give and have a good time. So you move from Zachy's to Wally's, and when did that happen? And what's Wally's? Wally's is basically taking the world over. <laughs> no, um, I moved from Zachy's to Wally's in July of 2013, and um, it's just been great, man. I mean, I was one of the first four auction employees and uh we really just since day one have worked really hard on building the company uh it's it's a beautiful thing when you work in an industry for 10 years and you have all these ideas about things that you might like to do or it would be cool if this thing would happen and now actually having the opportunity to do that it's just it's been awesome where's wally's based Wally's started it, based from a retail store in Los Angeles. Uh, we, in, in July, when we came on, we opened an office in New York City. So we're currently by coastal And uh, yeah. Where do you see it progressing along in terms of a company? Everyone at Wally's is super smart. And everyone that works there is really into wine. Wine and food. So I can just see Wally's uh, growing into this huge global brand with wine and food shops all over the place. The Wally's in um, Los Angeles, it's not just a wine shop. You know, they sell wine, they sell beer, and they also have this really cool cheese box. (laughs) It's literally called the cheese box where they sell uh, high-end cheeses and it's 
on this small compound and they're they're moving into doing other things. Um, I think recently it was announced that they they're taking over a, a, another place out there in, in Beverly Hills. So um, Wally's is just growing so fast and auctions was really the first offset of the retail store. And you recently introduced online-only auctions. Yes. What's that mean? I mean, how does that work? Well, online-only auctions, um, it's it's another cool thing that uh, a lot of auction house, wine auction houses are doing. We, It's really like an eBay-styled auction where we have a lot more flexibility to play with the way that we lot items. So um, in live auctions, you're really bound by certain expenses, right? You you have to make sure that it's going to make sense. Your average lot value is usually going to be a lot higher than it would be in any online sale because you have to pay a venue. You have to get all these moving parts in place all at one time. So you have to make sure that it's going to be worth the time. With online auctions, you can put together smaller lots, lower lot value, but also really cool items that um that people will, will will gravitate towards and i feel like in the past online sales they didn't they i wouldn't say they were like a junk show but it would just be lower tiered wines something that we're doing at Wally's is just our our online sales have high quality stuff that you would find in any in any live sale but it's just broken up into smaller quantities so that it's a lot more accessible to budding collectors. Is that a joke you guys use in the auction business? That's <laughs> well, a lot more accessible. <laughs> that was um that was actually a, a Germanism. I came <laughs> up with that. It's a Germain and Levyism. I think that we just invented that. So <laughs> what what trends have you seen in terms of what sells for what price during the period of time that you were with Zaki's and now with Wally's? Well, it's you know. Bordeaux is always going to have a a presence in auction and you, we're still getting like really great prizes on on Bordeaux at one of our last sales we sold a uh, 59 Lafitte Gero for like $16,000 um case of 75 Petrus for $22,000 so Bordeaux that still That was just the stuff you bought. Yeah, yeah, that was me. <laughs> but um <laughs> But uh, you know, it's it's also changing a lot. The cult California wines are going crazy these days. Dana Estates w- was recently sold for some really great prices. What else? Uh, a lot of super Tuscan wines are going crazy. But um, the thing that I like is that the auction world is really branching out, and you're finding a lot more spirits having fetching really high prices you know obviously everybody's going after pappy but all of the mccullens are are also doing really well it's not that they're having a high lot count in sales but when they do show up they're going for really good prices so um that that's that's a cool thing because um i tend to sway more to the spirit side um so do you think that that's going to be an increasing phenomenon? In other words, it seems like bourbon's really hot and the pricing for certain items that are also auctionable items mm-hmm. like Pappy yeah. has really gone up. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Do you think that the auction market affected the retail market that way? Like the fact that the people could now flip it actually made the original prices higher? Because it didn't used to be that there was auctions for spirits. Yeah. I would say, honestly, I think that both markets are feeding off of one another. I think that it really, auctions always comes down to exclusivity. You know, that's what's going to raise a price. And yeah, I think it, it, it's more so about exclusivity. And if there is just not that much of it out there, that's what's going to drive the price up. But um, I think that the the retail market has more influenced the auction market, honestly. How so? With Pappy being sold out everywhere, you just not being able to get your hands on it. That's when that's what auctions are designed for. You know, auctions tend to fetch higher prices for items that are in limited quantity and um, not easily accessible. That's what's always going to drive the price up, you know, because it's a competitive market. So it's not a retailer that's picking and choosing that they're going to sell this to all of their favorite clients. It's fair game for everyone and whoever's willing to pay the highest price that's going to be the guy that's going to walk away with that bottle. So um, I, th- I do think I would say that the retail market has influenced the auction market. Jermaine Stone, he's helping make the inaccessible more accessible <laughs> yes. as lots for Wally's auctions. Thank you very much for being here today. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. Jermaine Stone. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.